Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I am Chris Gambino, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Sandra Postel about her new book, Replenish, The Virtuous Cycle of Water and Prosperity. Sandra, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. So Sandra, our traditional first question, and I know our audience wants to know, tell us a little about yourself and how you got interested in water and how you got to where you are. Wow. Well, um, I've been working on global water issues for, gosh, it must be close to 35, 40 years now. It's been a long, a long journey, uh, but I found a niche there and never, never left it. Um, you know, after grad school at Duke University, I, I started working on water at a small consulting company in California. And then um, really the great opportunity for me after those few short years was a position at the World Watch Institute in Washington, D.C., where um, I had an opportunity to really think in a very interdisciplinary way, a more holistic way about the environment. This is back in the 80s. And so, you know, terms like sustainable development and all of the things that are familiar to us now really were very new and there was no internet. So we had to pour through books and data and, you know, it was a very different way of doing research. And yet it was one of the early centers of research, World Watch was, um, that, that helped us think in an interdisciplinary way and see the links between ecosystems and social systems and and economic systems. And so it, it was great training. Lester Brown was a, was a great mentor to me in, at that time. Um, and then I, I left in the early 90s, 94, I think, to start the Global Water Policy Project, which has been my kind of umbrella for the variety of things I've done since then, all water-related, um, but again, focused on kind of bridging science and policy and education and communication to the public. So it's been very important to me, you know, throughout my career to, to really communicate the issues that are important to me from a science perspective um, to policymakers and the general public so that we can, you know, take action um, on, these, on these challenges. Um, I spent some time teaching courses at Tufts University in the Boston area um, Mount Holyoke College for a number of years in Western Massachusetts, uh, directed the Center for the Environment at Mount Holyoke College for a, a little while, and just, just really in, enjoyed engaging with students as well uh, in, in my work and in my thinking about, about water. Uh, I live in New Mexico now, and shortly after I moved here, uh, National Geographic got in touch with me and and asked if I would consider leading up their new freshwater initiative, which uh, was just a tremendous opportunity for me to uh, join forces with an organization that was all about science and research and exploration, but also had this total dedication to 
education and using their media outlets, reaching a very broad audience. And this was a multi-year initiative uh, that involved a lot of different components, but it really allowed you know, me to really reach a much larger audience. And in terms of freshwater education, uh, we launched a water stewardship initiative, a national initiative that became known as Change the Course, which brought the general public and the business community and the conservation community together uh, to actually on the ground develop projects. And I shouldn't say develop, working with conservation groups that were developing projects Allow, allow projects to happen, to fund them and make them happen in a way that would restore water to the natural world, which was something that I had been interested in doing for many years, but here was the opportunity. And, and so we, uh, we sort of redefined what corporate business water stewardship and, and citizenry water stewardship looked like and just engaged in great projects. I'll talk about a few of them during this, during this talk. Um, and, and that has been an incredible highlight for me. And my book, Replenish, really came on the heels of that, you know, working with National Geographic for six years, all the travel, all of the, the work on the ground and the thinking um, really needed to be documented. And so I hadn't written a book in a little while, being so busy. I was doing a lot of blogs for National Geographic and other writing, but it was really an, an attempt to, to synthesize all the things I had been learning and doing. Um, into a book. And that became my latest book, Replenish, uh, The Virtuous Cycle of Water and Prosperity. And it's the fourth water book I've written. And I would say, interestingly, because the trends in water have not been going in a great direction, but in a way, it's my most optimistic book, I think, because, you know, I came at it from a place of what I would call realistic optimism, you know, that I could see on the ground, all of these great projects and initiatives happening in different parts of the world, including many in this country, in the United States. Um, and so it gave me the sense that, wow, yes, we can fix this broken water cycle if we work together, collaborate, innovate, um, and use the best of our science and, and technology and understanding to fix this water cycle um, and then scale up what's working. And that's the real challenge, right? How do you we can all point to interesting examples that show, wow, we can we can make a difference here. We can put water back in that river. We can restore that wetland. But how do you scale that up? Um, and so I wrote it from this place of optimism that we can point to all these great examples. But then I'm left still with the challenge: how, as a society, do we do we scale up these great solutions and really fix this broken water cycle? And so with that as an introduction, you know, I'll just maybe talk a bit <clears throat> about, about the book. Um, and again, I come at this with an incredible amount of, of gratitude for the opportunities I've had, you know, throughout my career to get to this place of writing Replenish and, and sort of bringing together so much of what I've learned over these 30 plus years of working on global water issues um, from, you know, traveling to the Aral Sea, which is shrinking in Central Asia to to examples right here in the United States. It was an attempt to really synthesize these things and bring these ideas together. So, so with that, you know, I'll just, I'll just kind of launch into, into the book. And I have to start, I guess, by saying that um, in a way, time is not on our side with regard to these solutions. Um, 
And I say that largely because of, of climate change. You know, the, the, we're going to experience climate change largely through changes in the water cycle. The world is getting hotter. It's getting hotter faster. Um, you know, the latest data from the World Meteorological Organization says to us that the last five years, so 2014 to 2019, have been the warmest five years on record. That's pretty extraordinary. Um, so there's no way the solutions that I'm going to talk about this morning or this afternoon, whatever time we're in, um, there's no way that those solutions will be sufficient to build water security unless we act on the science that tells us that we must keep global warming to less than two degrees Celsius and preferably to one and a half. And we're losing valuable time to accomplish that. So, so climate change is this sort of overriding risk, right, that affects everything I'm going to be talking about. But many of the solutions I'm going to be talking about are also ways to mitigate climate change. And virtually all of them are ways to adapt to the impacts of climate change, which of course is, is very important. So the first thing I should say is, is that, you know, when you look at a, say a map of the world um, that looks at uh, how, how we're, we've been depleting water, it's been getting, you know, redder and redder with every passing year. There's more depletion of groundwater, more depletion of rivers going on. And so some work I did with colleagues a few years ago, we published this in the journal Elementa in 2016. You know, we took a sort of finer look watershed by watershed at what was going on in terms of water use relative to the water available. And we found that basically 70% of irrigated agriculture and nearly half of large cities around the world experience at least periodic water shortage. So periodic meaning a dry year depletion or a seasonal like summertime depletion. And that's, that's a lot of risk right there. 70% of irrigated agriculture and irrigated agriculture gives us 40% of our food. The other 60% is rain-fed ag only, okay? Um, and then half of large cities that we're worried about, not having sufficient water all the time. And so that's sort of a, a global sort of wake up, you know, that we need to, uh, to really think about water. You know, and it's important to remember as I'm talking about this that we all know this, it's trite, you know, we, it's so easy to take water for granted. But keep in mind three really important things about water. One is that it's the basis of life, right? It's very different from coal, oil, which is a quote unquote resource that we extract to produce energy. Water is not only a an input to our food production and industrial production, our household use, it's the basis of life. Everything on earth requires water. Second thing is, and this is very important, there's no substitute for it. You know, we're in the process of a big transition in, in the energy sector away from coal and oil toward renewable sources, solar and wind. There's no transitioning away from water to something else. There are no substitutes, right? And then the third thing is it's finite. Okay, it's renewable by virtue of the global water cycle, by virtue of rainfall and, and snowpack and so on. It's, it's, it's renewable, but it's finite. There's only so much available in any given place. And so our, our demands, of course, are not finite. And so when we're thinking about water, remember those three things, basis of life, no substitutes, 
and it's renewable, but finite. Those are three important things to keep in mind. And so we have this picture of depletion and some of it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, depending on where we're living, we might have a source of water that comes from underground aquifers. And if we look at those, those, the use of that groundwater globally, we find that you know, 10% of our food today depends on the overpumping of those aquifers. 10% of our food depends on an unsustainable use of groundwater. And that's a great concern because you can think of it almost like a bubble in the food economy, right? We know what bubbles do. They have to burst eventually, whether we're talking about a housing bubble or a, some kind of a stock bubble. It has, to, it has to burst at some point unless you deal with it. And so that 10% might not sound like a lot, but effectively we're using some of today, excuse me, some of tomorrow's water, right, to meet our food demands today. So what about tomorrow? Where's the water going to come to meet all the food needs for tomorrow? So that's a concern that we're in this unsustainable use of groundwater. One of the things that surprised me a lot when I was researching Replenish is just how important the soil is to our global water cycle. Again, when I'm, I'm kind of making an assumption, we all know what the global water cycle is from our, you know, fifth grade grammar school textbooks. But you know, just to, to remind ourselves, you know, this is the cycling of water from the atmosphere across the land back to the ocean. Evaporation brings water back to the atmosphere over the land, and you have that continuous cycle of of water. Um, and you have places where water is stored in, in lakes and in, in the soil and so on in groundwater. And then you have a portion of the cycle that is actively recirculating all the time at different rates in different ways. Um, and changing and also changing states, you know, going from vapor to liquid ice and so on. So that cycling is what really provides this gift of water to the planet. It is an incredibly unique uh, aspect of planet Earth um, that creates this amazing amount of life on, on the planet. And one of the aspects of that water cycle that I myself, having been studying water for 30 years, had really paid too little attention to until researching Replenish was this, this importance of the, the soil, that very thin band of, of, of Earth that uh, we take for granted in terms of our crop production but this, this statistic kind of blew me away that soils can hold eight times more water than all the world's rivers combined. And yet we really don't think about managing the soil as a reservoir for water. We think of it really only in terms of growing crops, right? But in terms of storing water, yes, for crop production, but also, of course, for forests and rangelands. I mean, the soil provides the base for everything that's growing. Um, it's also an incredible reservoir of water. And so managing the soil as that soil water reservoir came to me to be, to be very, very important. And I'll probably come back to that. The other thing that we've done, um, and, and for very good reasons, is to dam, right, a lot of the world's rivers. And so if we're thinking about the ways in which we've broken the water cycle, the building of dams on rivers is certainly a big one. And I say that, again, recognizing that, you know, the uh, uh, more than 50,000 dams, large dams, close to 60,000 now, actually, 
60,000 large dams that, um, uh, that we find across the world's rivers have been built for very good reasons. You know, hydropower production, water supply, irrigation, recreation, flood control, very good reasons. It's sort of hard to imagine our world without the ability to store water, generate power from dams and, and so on. And yet that's been a big break in the water cycle because what rivers do is flow through their watersheds and carry sediment and nutrients along the way and then replenish the coastal zones with sediment and nutrients. So deltas, river deltas from the Colorado Delta to the Nile Delta to the Mississippi Delta exist and flourish and are such incredibly important habitats and productive areas because of all that sediment, nutrient, and fresh water that rivers are bringing to them. So dams around the world have broken that part of the cycle. We've trapped all that sediment. We've stored all that water. Many rivers no longer reach the sea, including the Colorado, the Ganges, the Indus, the Yellow, um, the Nile, no longer reach the sea for extended periods of time. So that's a big break in, in the water cycle, even as we appreciate all the benefits that we're getting uh, from these dams. Many of us, I'm sure, have seen Hoover Dam on the Colorado. And that was the bit, first big super dam constructed in the world. And then we sort of exported right that technology around the world so others could have these big dams and, and be able to store all that water and generate all that hydropower. So it became a sort of global enterprise throughout the 20th century to the point where if you look at the numbers, we built about over the last 50, 60 years, we built about two large dams a day, every day for more than half a century. Okay, so that's a very large change in the hydrologic environment in a very short period of time. At the same time, we've lost about half the world's wetlands. You know, we call them swamps or you know, we have these names that don't really suggest they're terribly valuable to us, but they are incredibly valuable in what they give us in what ecologists call services, ecosystem services. And wetlands are incredibly important from that perspective. You know, they remove nitrogen and phosphorus that are reaching uh, at the land through, you know, the runoff from farmlands, carrying fertilizers and so on into our water bodies. They regulate floods. Wetlands are great bird and wildlife habitat, produce fish. Uh, sequester carbon, so very important for climate mitigation. They're great at storing water. They're like a sponge, you know, they absorb water, hold it, store it, and then release it gradually. So the river flows again the next year. And they, of course, in that way, they mitigate drought as well. But we've lost about half of them. That's a lot of important ecological work, ecological service, right, that we've just lost and have had to replace with technology where we're able to. And that's sometimes working and sometimes not. The other thing, and, and just hang with me here because we're going to get into solutions, but I wanted to, I want to first give you a, just a sense of the scale of the global challenge we're dealing with in terms of this breaking of the water cycle. But we'll get back quickly to, to, to solutions and, and bring ourselves back up to feeling some hope here. Um, but this other statistic is one that I continue to grapple with, and it's, it's sort of a mind-boggling statistic, and it's that since 1970, so that's 50 years ago, um, the average abundance of freshwater vertebrate life, so freshwater vertebrate populations, frogs and fish and so on, worldwide has declined by 83%. 
We're not talking loss of species, although that's happening too, but the numbers, the numbers of freshwater vertebrates is down by 83%. So for every 100 fish and frogs we might have seen in the world in 1970, we now have only 17. So that's a tremendous loss of life and functioning, right, of, of the natural world. It makes me wonder how we really are still functioning with, with that amount of loss of life. The other thing we're seeing, and I'm getting close to ter- making the turn here to, a, to the solutions, but I have to mention pollution a bit because things like toxic algal blooms, right, are on the rise. And I'm sure our listening community here today is from all over the country, maybe others from the world. But almost anywhere we are, we're seeing this rise in toxic algal blooms from, you know, the input of nitrogen and phosphorus reaching our streams, our creeks, our groundwater, and then flowing to lakes, flowing to coastal zones and creating, you know, these blooms of algae that then decompose and often cause uh, dead zones in their wake. Um, And some of these algal blooms we now realize are very toxic. Some of us might remember in 2014, the city of Toledo, Ohio, had to shut down its drinking water intake for the whole city because a toxic algal bloom in the western part of Lake Erie had positioned itself right over the drinking water intake where the the drinking water comes out of the lake and goes into the treatment system had positioned itself right over it. And so the drinking water was going to be unsafe to drink. And so the city had to tell people, don't drink the water, don't give it to your pets, we've got a problem here. And it lasted a few days, um, but it was a wake-up call, um, you know, that these, that these are becoming very serious health risks around, around the country. And again, they're on the rise. We have, uh, you know, talking to, I think I'll skip that one, that idea, just looking at some notes. And of course, climate change is, is going to worsen all of this. Um, Everything we've just been talking about, um, the idea I was going to just for sake of time skip over is, is, is the idea of wildfires increasing and how that threatens drinking water. Um, and all these things are increasing as a result of the warming of the planet. Floods and droughts are going to get worse. Water shortages are going to get worse. We're going to have melting glaciers, more algal blooms because algae do grow better under warmer temperatures more dead zones, more wildfires, and so on, more species extinction, sea level rise. And, and so, you know, this is a huge challenge. Um, we talk a lot now about this new normal, and it is a new normal. Scientists uh, use a term called stationarity, sta- and they say stationarity is dead. And what that means is that the old rules with water no longer apply. You know, we used to know, yes, there's a lot of variability. We know there are floods. We know there are droughts. Um, But we we used to be able to say, but they're not going to be worse than this. They're going to be within an envelope that we can define. And now we're outside that envelope. So that's that's a a difficult place to be if you're a planner. Where do you build the dam? Are the levees going to hold? Where do we have to worry about toxic algal blooms arising? And all of these kinds of questions now. Um, are troubling uh, the the water community. We got a big, big wake up call about this um, in uh, in in Cape Town, South Africa, a few years ago, uh, where three consecutive years of drought left their water reservoirs 
empty and effectively empty. And, um, you know, this was a modern city of millions of people that were told, you know, we have to watch for day zero. And the city would say what the day was. And the concern was, you know, by this date, we're going to have to shut off the taps because there'll be not enough water for everyone in the city. And this just hadn't happened in a major city before. And I use it as an example because in the historic record, this would not have happened. A drought that serious for three consecutive years just was not something expected in Cape Town's hydrologic record. And yet it did happen. So it's an example, right, of being outside this envelope and how we have to think differently and plan differently and become more resilient um, when it comes to water. You know, Albert Einstein reminded us years and years and years ago, many decades ago, of something that I come back to often. He said, you can't solve problems. We can't solve problems using the same kind of thinking we used when we created those problems. And I think that applies very much to water because our traditional approach was always when, for example, when supplies become short, go out and find more build a bigger dam, divert more water from one watershed to another. If you're Los Angeles, you're reaching out to Northern California. You're reaching out to the Colorado River. Um, you're, you're, you're reaching near and far. You're, you're, you're taking water from underground. So there was always a supply to go to if you were willing to spend enough money and enough energy to bring that water to you. That's harder and harder to do, both from an economic perspective and from an ecological perspective. Um, and water's finite, right? So there's just limited more place, limited places to go. And so we have to really think differently about how we're going to meet these demands for water in a way that builds this resilience, that recognizes climate change, and that recognizes that water is finite and being depleted. And so the good news is that there are a number of things we can do um, to build that resilience and water security and a lot of it has to do with this change in mindset, you know, getting away from the supply side thinking, right, that we just go out and find more, to getting very creative about how we can manage our demand more effectively. How can we conserve, recycle, reuse, um, think about our own personal water footprints, our own personal water use? Um, so... And, and this is where I draw, I draw the, you know, the real sort of hopeful feeling from because we've barely tapped a lot of these solutions and yet there's tremendous potential in all of them. If we think at, about irrigation, for example, which is worldwide the biggest user of water, 70% of all the water we extract from rivers, lakes, and aquifers underground go to irrigation, go to growing crops. But there's so much we can do. One of the really interesting areas right now is, is applying information technology to irrigation efficiency technology, which allows you to deliver much more precisely the amount of water to those crops than you did before. We saw projects, I've seen projects, for example, uh, and these exist all over the place, but I happen to see some interesting research in, um, and <clears throat> field work in uh, in the Flint River Basin in Georgia, where we're concerned about the loss of freshwater mussels from the overpumping of groundwater and the drying up of base flows for the Flint River. Well, one of the things they're looking at there is, you know, how to 
program these big center pivot sprinklers. You know, when you fly across the U.S. and you see those big circles on the ground as you go across the Midwest, those are from center pivot sprinklers. And they're very large. They draw a lot of water from underground. Um, And now there's technology where you can uh, measure the amount of soil moisture that's in your field, program your center pivot irrigation system to deliver just the amount of water that's needed for the crops in those different locations. It's equipped with a GPS and it allows you to get much more precise. So you have a smarter irrigation system that can reduce your water use by a significant amount. That's just one example that is barely in use, but could save a lot of water if we were able to get the incentives to expand the use of that technology and help farmers to do it. Um, One of my favorite projects that I worked on during this time with National Geographic was a project um, on a river that's a tributary in the Colorado River Basin in Arizona. It's called the Verde River, and it's one of, I would say, three or four rivers in the American Southwest that is a real lifeline for migratory birds. It's still got really nice riverside habitat. Um, that migratory birds use for nesting and feeding and breeding as they're migrating across the from from South America on up to uh, uh, the northern part northern climates, um, and and yet it's been over tapped as a result of irrigation for the last century and a half. You know the water goes into a big ditch system and gets virtually depleted during uh, the summer months. And so there, um, in this case, a conservation organization, the Nature Conservancy, worked very closely with the irrigators in the valley to understand that they, and and again, a lot of trust building went before this, learning from each other, but they came to realize that all the agricultural water needs, all of the irrigation needs could be met, taking less water than had been the case before. So putting in some very simple infrastructure, a solar-powered headgate, allowed the irrigators to get the water they needed but leave the rest for the river. It's not rocket science, but nothing in Western water policy would motivate that to be done without this partnership and this collaboration that said, yes, let's try this. And sure enough, you know, the irrigators did have enough water to meet their needs. The river in some areas was flowing twice as much as it had before. And the economy was benefiting because there was more water in the river for tourism, for boating, for fishing. And so it was a win-win-win all around. And of course, the habitat for fish and birds was, was much better. Again, the theme, getting smarter about how we use the water and thinking about the importance of keeping water in stream for both ecological and economic benefit. So I love examples like that. And that river, then those projects then spawned more projects um, where some farmers decided um, it would be better and, and better for the river if less was taken out in the summer. So let's plant barley instead of alfalfa. Barley requires less water. Barley, uh, it can be harvested earlier in the season. So you're not tapping into the river in the most at-risk time in the summer. And so how, how to motivate the planting of barley? Well, there was a conservationist and an entrepreneur in the Verde Valley who decided we'll put in a barley malt facility, create a demand for the barley, create barley malt, grow it, pr- produce it in this facility, and then sell it to the microbreweries in Arizona. 
again, better for the environment, better for the economy. And so it, it spawned a whole bunch of interesting, innovative ideas that, are, that have been really interesting to watch unfold. And it just shows, again, when you work together in a com- as a community of, of water users, you can come up with these creative solutions. And building trust was a first step there because you know con- the conservation community and the irrigation community often have different goals. And so finding that common ground and building that trust was, was, really, was really key. What are some other good examples? Um, we've seen a lot of dams, especially small dams, actually come down. Um, you know, we've been building these big dams, but we find, especially in places like the northeastern United States, but really around the country, we have a lot of old, small dams that were built during the 19th century, you know, textile mills and the small dams that would just take, you know, create a little bit of energy as the river was running by. They're very obsolete now. They're not used and they're often a, a safety risk. And so around the country, we have taken down at this point over 1,470. I think the last I looked, it was 1,476 U.S. dams dismantled over the last 30 years. Um, and that's, that's a big benefit to often very small rivers and tributaries. Now, fish can get further upstream. They're not blocked by the dam anymore. They can get upstream to spawn. You have more oxygen flowing. You have a restoration of the food webs and food cycles and decomposition cycles. You have more habitat. And again, you haven't lost anything. The dams are obsolete anyway. And so just the funding and the collaboration, again, local groups, state agencies, conservation groups, communities, being willing to to take them down and let the river flow again can create huge ecological benefits without, without much loss. In some cases, the really amazing part of this is we've seen, you know, for example, um, a couple of big dams that were taken taken down in Washington State, um, on uh, including the Elwha Dam on the Elwha River um, and the Glines Canyon Dam on the Elwha River. They came down some years ago, and the amazing thing was within months of the removal of the dams, scientists counted more than 4,000 spawning Chinook salmon above the former dam site. So the taking down of the dam allowed the salmon you know, to find their spawning habitat, successfully spawn. And we've seen this in a number of locations. The Edwards Dam on the Kennebec River in Maine, same thing. That was one of the earlier, larger dams to come down. And you saw the benefits to fish populations coming back in, 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 in record time, I think faster than anybody expected. So this, was, this is really, really good news that if we can do this more and more, uh, we'll begin to see those populations uh, really begin to, to, re- to replenish and come back. Um, in our urban areas, and this is, this is where we're seeing some interesting, interesting work also in this area of green infrastructure. Um, if you think about cities, um, uh, I love something the author Robert McFarlane um, said in his, in, his, in his most recent book. Um, I'm going to try to quote him here. He said something like, all cities are additions to a landscape that require subtraction from somewhere else. And I think water is a great example of that. You know, we've got millions of people living in cities, right? In this very dense environment, dense population that require, everyone requires water. So that water has to come 
from somewhere else, right? And so we've, we've, we're transferring a huge amount of water. I think it's now the equivalent of 10 Colorado rivers, right, that are being imported worldwide by cities to meet, to meet their needs. So it's a lot of water coming from somewhere else to meet those urban, urban needs. And yet we're seeing a lot of really good conservation work in cities. Uh, here in the United States, thanks to legislation we passed in the early 90s, that required more efficient faucets, toilets, shower heads, later on dishwashers and um, washing machines. Our use of water as a nation is 9 billion gallons less uh, than it was, 9 billion gallons less per day than it was uh, in, uh, in the early 70s. So we're saving that 9 billion gallons per day. Uh, which is equivalent to nine New York City's worth of water. It's a tremendous amount of water with really no action on our part, just that when I was a kid, it took five gallons to flush the toilet. Now it takes no more than 1.6 and often 1.3. And so a lot of water being saved. And then we're seeing this new surge in interest in what we call green infrastructure in cities, which is looking at how we can capture more stormwater that falls, um, and instead of allowing it to flood our urban streets, allow it to infiltrate and replenish uh, the soil and the groundwater below, rather than causing these destructive urban flooding and pollution of our creeks and and bays and so on. And so things like rain gardens, um, bioswales along our streets, where you have a depression that's vegetated that captures that that runoff before it reaches the the the, the concrete street, uh, trying to plant more permeable pavement so that water soaks in rather than running off these impermeable surfaces. Um, China's become quite a leader in this. Um, they have something called a sponge cities initiative, and it's in response to China having you know really a tough time with both droughts and floods, often back to back. And so again, using the landscape like a sponge, help it to absorb that rainwater, store it, and then release it more gradually. And so they have um, a tremendous amount going on in this area now um, in terms of uh, the, in terms of this initiative, I think it's now 30, yeah, 30 cities. Um, and the target is to retain 70% of all that stormwater that's falling. And again, turning it from a nuisance, which is going to cause all this flooding, into an asset, a water supply that can be tapped later on. And again, the goal is to become more resilient to floods and droughts, which we know are going to be increasing as, as climate change unfolds. Um, so that's, you know, that's a pretty good... Um, I think overview of the kinds of, there are many more projects we could talk about watershed protection, like New York city is doing. Um, we have a project here in New Mexico where I live to try to make our watershed more resilient to wildfire because after a wildfire, a few years back, we had to shut down the water supply here on the Rio Grande because there was so much sediment and debris flowing into the river from the wildfire that, that it was going to be potentially harmful to the water treatment work. So how do we build resilience in the watershed? How do we protect the watershed? And again, great collaborations going on in this. So I think we really you know, need to think about how do we 
scale all this up and um, develop the incentives and the policies. And that's where we, you know, we, we come to, um, you know, the, the societal and political challenge to, to, to really get these kinds of solutions out there. Um, I wrote a piece for um, a publication called The Hill a few weeks ago, um, in which I, I titled it, um, It's Time to Create a Climate Preparedness Corps. And I was proposing that as a job creation strategy to help us get out of the economic malaise from this COVID moment of the COVID crisis, you know, to, to go back and learn from the Civilian Conservation Corps of the 1930s, which helped to get us out of the Great Depression, and start to build these on-the-ground projects um, that are going to employ millions of people and a lot of young people, right, who are going to be looking for work. Um, and use their skills, their, you know, the strength and the smarts that they've acquired in, in, in their education to start to build some of these things out around, around the country. Um, and I think that's the kind of bold effort we're going to need to do this kind of work in the time that we have, where it can really make a difference. You know, we can absolutely fix this water cycle. All these problems I've been talking about are solvable, but we've got to get on it because they're you know, the pace of the challenge, the pace of the, of the problems is exceeding our rollout of solutions. So we really need to ramp, ramp this, this kind of thinking and kind of action up. And I think this is a great moment to think about that and, and how we can respond to both this COVID moment where we're going to need to re, uh, you know, re-employ so many people and to do it in a way that gets us prepared for the next crisis, that gets us ready for climate change and the impacts it's going to bring. All of these projects I've been talking about um, will help us be more resilient to climate change. So I think I'll stop there. I've been talking a long time, and, um, and I hope this has been interesting for you to, to listen to and to talk to and to, and to learn from. And, and I look forward to uh, continuing this conversation with anyone who's interested. Thank you. Sandra, thank you so much. This was a fantastic conversation, and I, I really appreciate you detailing a lot of the projects that you and your group have been working on. These examples and and more ag and city options are discussed within Replenish. And what I, I really appreciate, Sandra, in reading Replenish and also speaking with you is your ability to recognize the complexity of these diverse needs and at the same time still recognize the newer solutions and ideas like your Einstein quote suggested, for example, the recognition of kind of noting this red herring argument around dams and, and diversions that you mentioned within your book. Um, so I really appreciate that. And, and for those of you listening, I think this book offers a lot of insight to projects. You've heard about some of them when we were just talking and listening to Sandra speak, but there's more in the book. And and they really detail a lot of the information and, and complexity of the issue and kind of give, give weight to every side, but also try and drive the conversation forward with what are these newer solutions? What are these ideas to help us create this virtuous cycle uh, and, and reconnect to the water cycle? And so, Sandra, with that, uh, we've taken up a bunch of your time. And I want to give you that final question that we ask all of our authors that come on. What exactly are you working on now? Oh, well, thanks, Chris, for that. Um, 
You know, what I'm working on so far, really just sorting through in my head and, and trying to figure out how we can do this. I really do feel, and maybe it's, you know, 30, 40 years working on, on these issues, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking for something deeper that's going to affect the kind of change I think we need. Um, and some of it comes from that statistic I mentioned about the loss of freshwater life, um, you know, 83% down. What, what does that mean? How did we get here? Um, and so I'm working through in my mind and, and reading and thinking now about this whole idea of rights for nature. You know, how, how do we change our relationship with the natural world and how we think about it? An interesting thing about replenish is that I wrote that book and never used the term water resource. And I think some people look at me like, how could you write a book on water and not use the term water resource? And it's actually not hard at all. And it's a phrase that we've come to use so easily. And yet I think language matters. And when you use the word resource, it immediately puts you into this thinking of it's there for us. It is something to extract. It is something to exploit. Um, and it forces me, if I'm not using that phrase, to talk about not a water resource, but to talk about a lake, talk about the river, talk about the aquifer. And each of those sources, I think the word source is totally fine. It's resource that puts us in the thinking of coal and oil, right? Something we extract and use and it's gone, as opposed to the source of water, which is the source of life. Let's remember, every time we're thinking about water, we're talking about a source that supports life on the planet. It's a different way of thinking. And we can forget it. We can forget that so easily. So right now I'm working on... On, on this idea, how do we change our cultural relationship, our cultural view and perspective of water in a way that's just going to make it harder to keep losing wetlands, to keep losing habitat, to say, well, yeah, that shopping mall is really important, even though that area of wetland is supporting hundreds of species, right? How do we, how do we change our thinking and, and bring nature more to the table and give nature more of a voice. And I think that's really incredible and incredibly important. Um, many indigenous cultures already have this embedded in their uh, values and philosophies around water and their actions around water. I think we have a lot to learn in Western science and in Western culture around this, and certainly in Western law around this. So I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with this yet. I'm still in the early days of, of, of learning and thinking, um, but that might be where I, where I go next. I'm not sure. <laughs> I agree that that is necessary work. And I just wanted to thank you again for joining us here. Uh, it was great to listen to all the information you have to provide and Again, the book was a wonderful read. So I recommend everyone grabbing a copy and digging into some more of these examples. Uh, thank you again, Sandra, and take care. Thank you, Chris. You do the same. Thank you. <laughs>